0: Welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller.
1: And I'm Brad Carlson.
0: And today, Brad, we've got a number of guests with us. Uh, We haven't done this in the past where we've, well, we've had two guests, but today we've actually got three. And so uh, we're going to, to change it up, we're going to go around the table and and let everyone kind of introduce themselves quick before we get started.
2: Hi, I'm Fabio Fernandez. I'm a nutrient management specialist at the University of Minnesota. I'm located in the St. Paul campus.
3: This is Daniel Kaiser. I'm another nutrient management specialist with the University of Minnesota, also located on the St. Paul campus.
4: Hi, this is Jeff Vetch. I'm a researcher and soil scientist at the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Waseca.
0: Well, welcome to our guests. We really appreciate uh, them joining us today and want to say thanks to the folks out there listening. Um, Brad, now today we we wanted to talk a little bit about nitrogen, in particular nitrogen rates, and I think what I'm going to do is let you kind of set the stage for what we hope to accomplish today.
1: Yeah, first of all, Ryan, I hope you don't feel outnumbered here. You got, uh, as an agronomist uh, with four soil scientists on the podcast, but I, I think you'll probably manage, uh, uh, depending on where you're at, uh, people tend to lump uh, agronomists and soil scientists in the same category anyway. but. Uh, We wanted to talk today about nitrogen rates and and particularly it's sort of been making the rounds this winter that uh, some of the research but also grower experience this past year has shown the need for a lot higher nitrogen rates in uh, some circumstances compared to what the kind of the set university recommendations are and so uh, instead of just having uh, folks uh, try to interpret what that means for this coming season and going forward, uh, we kind of thought it'd be a good idea uh, to, to have a conversation about it, try and sort it out, put it in context, and uh, use the information, because it is real, um, to, to make decisions going forward. So I think maybe the, the probably the place to start with is with Jeff, because a lot of that research uh, came from the Wasika area, and you personally, Jeff, were doing some of the presentations uh, related to this. So maybe you'd like to just give us a quick overview of of kind of what you found in this uh, in this area.
4: Thanks, Brad. Yeah, you know, I think I, I've been here now. I think at the S Rock 28 years, and in the 90s, late 90s, I think our you know our our N rate trials were all pretty consistent, and pr- generally, the vast majority of them agreed with our best ma- or our BMP rates, our recommendations, or our fertilizer guidelines. I think I've noticed this change kind of beginning back in the early 2000s where it seems like we started to need a little bit more N and a little bit more N, especially when corn follows corn in these high residue systems. I don't know if that. Uh, coincides with when we had rootworm corn and we started getting much greater yields with corn on corn as well. But And then periodically we would get this year or two where the end demand was way greater. In fact, as Fabian has seen since he's been here in some of his studies that we've done here at Wasika and in other locations, where sometimes we didn't have high enough end rates to to actually maximize yield. But many of those years were springs... That were really wet, and we kind of always thought, well, it was a really wet spring. We had a lot of losses, but I don't think the the wet conditions is describing or explaining all of what we're seeing.
1: Yeah, that, that's a nice overview, Jeff, and and uh, you know, it's it's worth uh, noting, I guess, for those who. Uh, aren't familiar with the Research and Outreach Center at Waseca. I think probably a lot of our listeners are, but some maybe are not. Um, it's in the Des Moines Lobe uh, Glacial Till. It's the, the, the sort of uh, classic Nicollet, Clarion, Webster uh, soil. Catinas, the heavy black mollusol prairie soils, uh, which tend to be fairly wet. And uh, typically in, in uh, most agricultural regions, uh, I should really say in South Central and you know, Minnesota and, and North Central Iowa, where those soils are prevalent, uh, typically are 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 tile drained, and so that's kind of the the epicenter of where a lot of this has been coming from. Um, a lot of uh, a, a lot of what we've we've discussed related to nitrogen management and and rates and so forth uh, has revolved around the potential for loss, which is, is water-based, uh, either through denitrification or leaching. And uh, Fabian, you might be able to add on to that because you've been doing quite a bit of uh, uh, looking at, at drainage status and, and nitrogen rates. Yeah,
2: for sure. And uh, you know, some of the things that Jeff was mentioning in terms of uh, um, weather conditions, I think that there is quite a bit of that going on. Um, when we look at nitrogen loss, in relationship to precipitation that is large enough to create drainage uh, we see that these pretty, pretty well related to each other you know when we have a lot of excess precipitation a lot of drainage happening that's where we see most of the nitrogen loss happening um, and the other part to this is that um, it's kind of this pollution trading thing you know when we when we look at from the environmental standpoint because we are looking at drain and undrained sites and in the undrained sites we actually need more nitrogen to get to that economic optimum than in a drain site and so obviously the the loss is happening in both systems in the drain system you're losing nitrate uh, through the tile line but in the undrained soils where you have saturated water conditions you're losing um, in a relative basis more nitrogen potentially than uh... Then in the drain system through the denitrification process, so this nitrogen is just uh, going off to the atmosphere. In either case we are losing nitrogen and, and that's I think the, the major reason why we are seeing that uh, we need more nitrogen is because we are getting these wetter conditions. And I would also agree with with Jeff with the fact that uh, I think the hybrids that we are using now are also different in terms of uh, the decomposition. I think these uh, hybrids come to the end of the season in a much better shape they are not uh, as degraded the stocks are a lot uh, more uh, full and and just uh, complete whereas you know 20-30 years ago those stocks basically by harvest they will be flancy and starting to to break down we don't seem to see that anymore and uh, obviously when you have those intact uh, crops or, or stocks it takes a lot more uh, to break them down and to release the nitrogen uh, that it's in them, as well as the uh, microbes that use nitrogen from the soil to do that breakdown process, basically immobilize or take nitrogen out of the system during that process. So one of the concepts
1: that we've talked about a lot uh, in, in discussing our nitrogen management over the last uh, several years, particularly we focus on this a lot when we do our nitrogen smart trainings, is the fact that um, the, the total nitrogen rate is is really not, uh, the, 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 the MRTN, the, the maximum return to nitrogen, does not necessarily correlate in a linear fashion with yield, and so when we look at those, the, the different nitrogen response curve or response uh, trials, and we plot those peak yields at the MRTN, we end up with a shotgun blast pattern, which sort of lends some credence to the fact that uh, just simply because we increase yield does not necessarily mean that we are in, need to increase the nitrogen rate. Yet, of course, there's this whole logical train of But, of course, if you do have higher yield, you can chop the stock off at the ground, grind it up, and analyze it, and there's more nitrogen in the stock with a higher yield than a lower yield. That tracks linearly. Uh, So how do we piece this uh, out or sort this out as far as what percentage of this is relative to improvements in hybrids and traits? And what of it is just simply uh, based on... Uh, the, the weather, because you know, we, we were getting other reports beyond just simply our, our own nitrogen rate trials. Uh, you know, Jeff, we, we've heard from farmers who are very good managers who said, uh, gee, our, our uh, crops ran short of nitrogen last year. We Typically, we don't experience that on our farm. Uh, we had anecdotal evidence that, um, that, that fields that were fertilized with manure uh, may have run short this year. Um, something may be going on with either some loss or, or overall mineralization of nitrogen out of manure. Uh, h- how do we sort this out as far as what's to blame on the year and what's what's other factors that uh, probably need to be adjusted for?
3: Well, some of what you had, Brad, I mean, and some of what Jeff talked about, I'm, I guess this doesn't help anybody listening at home, but I'm looking at... The, um, the data we have looking at yearly trends for MRTNs out of our database. And uh, one of the things that um, when I look at it, as Jeff mentioned, particularly in continuous corn, starting at around 2000, we saw a pretty steep linear increase in our average yearly MRTNs. Uh, if you compare that to corn following soybean, we saw maybe a jump back in 2014. It's been relatively flat, albeit maybe slightly increasing. It's kind of when we started to get into these wetter years. And in both cases, we've seen yields increase. So if you try to pair that with uh, just an overall trending or tracking our average increase in yield, I mean, you, when you look at both systems, it isn't that one system's increasing, one isn't. Um, there's something else going on. There, So it's kind of hard to say. I mean, I guess I liken it probably more to some of the, the residue that's out there. But I mean, there might be more that, that we just don't understand what's going on there. And um, I mean, I was just looking at some data, you know, Brad, the, the study that we're working on around uh, Madison Lake, that um, pre-plant nitrate test trial, I look, just looked at some of our residual end levels and there's hardly anything there in the three foot depths. And so you look at kind of, you know, the weather patterns we've had. If you look at mineralization, you look at carryover residual nitrate. I mean, I could maybe throw fixed ammonia. We have no idea anything about that at all, whether or not there's any contributions there. There's a number of things that that could be in play. I mean, I think certainly, and I know, Jeff, I've seen... Some of the data you had before your implementation of your um, your cover crop study on your drainage plots that you were looking at increasing rates in continuous corn and not seeing a whole lot of difference in terms of uh, those increased rates in your check, similar to what we had expected with that 160 pound end rate um, a few years few years back. So, there's something going on. I mean, I'm a, I'm a certainly um, kind of assuming we're getting more denitrification losses, particularly in these poorly drained soils, which is obviously going to impact rates. But it's it's more complex of just one thing, and that's where you know that yield tracking that with our MRTN. I mean, it's I mean, in general, you see somewhat of a pattern, maybe in continuous corn, but it isn't enough that you can just simply start adjusting a field based on on those those. Um, Expected yields. It's, it's still um, kind of that shotgun pattern.
2: I just want to mention two, two things that I have also been noticing with, related to what Dan was talking about because um, when we look at drainage, um, we know that the soil is not a very good place to store nitrogen, but um, we normally talk about nitrogen losses happening in the spring. But in the last few years also, I have been noticing that we get quite a bit of nitrogen loss in the fall, and this is not from the fertilizer or leftover nitrogen that we then use. It's through nitrogen that was mineralized between the time the plant ended up uh, its cycle and uh, the time where we start getting enough precipitation to move water through the profile. and So we are losing nitrogen in the fall, which is kind of a new thing. We didn't really see that before. Um, and then another thing that I just actually was looking at this this week is in looking at the, the data from different trials since 2014, since I started working here. Um, we have changed the nitrogen source that we use for the most part. I mean, anhydrous ammonia used to be the number one source of nitrogen for you know, both fall and spring applications, and when we look at spring applications of anhydrous ammonia compared to urea, I consistently see that anhydrous ammonia yields better at the same amount of nitrogen compared to urea. And I think that there may be some of that going on as well. I mean, we all know that anhydrous ammonia, at the moment of application, it takes a while before it converts to uh, nitrate, whereas urea, that process is a lot faster, and so the potential for nitrogen loss could be... Uh, much greater with urea than anhydrous ammonia, and I think that's that may be one of those factors too that we need to, to explore a little bit more.
3: Yeah, and that difference, that difference, Fabian, between the two, it's amazing because you know at one point in time, I think when I first came in, we knew that they were roughly equal with urea being slightly higher for sales. Now that di- that gap has widened considerably, so it's I mean there's a lot more urea usage, and I understand why. I mean just with the safety and handling. And it's a lot easier. You'll go out there with the floater, um, going at a higher rate of speed. You can get a field done faster. Of why it's gone that way, but uh, some of the comments you have, I think, are really interesting, particularly with anhydrous. That um, you know, it's something that maybe need to be rethought in some areas. But I don't think we're that cat's out of the bag that we're going to get that thing back in where we're going to we're going to start to see anhydrous pick up again for the future.
1: Well, well, so part of this, and and actually, what Fabian just laid out really kind of uh, emphasizes the point that I wanted to make or the question I wanted to ask you guys and and that just simply is that if we look at nitrogen loss uh, as nitrate it it, time is a factor and so the time between when you apply and when the crop needs it the longer it's out there the more prone it is to being lost Uh, and so in these circumstances where we are experiencing very wet conditions and prolonged uh, l- stress for loss, um, then application timing should be a factor. So to what extent uh, have we seen that we can mitigate this by doing split applications? Because that has also been a major trend uh, in applications, because the the extent to which that, that, you know, it's a factor of how long the nitrogen is out there, uh, we should be able to reduce loss just simply by split applying it.
4: Yeah, in my trials in southeast Minnesota, Brad, we looked at uh, rate and timing and comparing an all pre-plant application of urea to a split application. And about, you know, five out of 20 trials, we saw an advantage to split application. And when we did, it was usually we were getting a similar yield with less N when we split applied versus putting it all out pre-plant. But as Fabian, I'm sure, will say, that's not a huge percentage, it's not a huge number, it's not the only factor that's gonna help mitigate some of these concerns or solve all of our problems. It's not gonna be the the silver bullet by any means. Yeah, and
2: I agree agree with that, Jeff, because um, I think to a certain extent, uh, people are kind of overselling the value of this plate application. I think there is great value in some situations uh, when the springs are extremely wet, that, or, or in soils where you have uh, poor drainage, that's where you will see a, a much greater chance of seeing a benefit with the split application. But as we were uh, starting the conversation today and talking about precipitation, I think that drives quite a bit of it. I had uh, this study in uh, Lamberton looking at uh, drainage, nitrate leaching, and with the split application, comparing that to a pre-plant application. And in some years, the split application actually lost more nitrogen and reduced the yield more than the pre-plant application. And it had nothing to do with the timing of application. It had to do with when that nitrogen was applied in relationship to large rain events that happened after. And so if you were lucky enough to apply as a side-race application and then you didn't have Huge precipitation, uh, you were fine. But if you happen to apply nitrogen and then get substantial rain, you actually increase the potential for nitrogen loss. And I've seen that at Becker
3: quite a bit. Um, we had some studies a few years ago, and um, we were getting linear yield r- responses to nitrogen up to three hundred pounds, and we were doing our standard BMP, um, you know, at planting, you know, V four so split and. So what I had to start doing was adjusting, and we went to I went to an additional timing. I went to three splits, and that seemed to at least be able to get it to the point at which I could plateau my yield within my targeted end rates. And that's I mean it's really been the challenge with it. And I don't know. I mean, the more and more we look at this, it isn't a straight answer because I've seen the same thing where we look at splits at different timings. We had some studies um, for a few years just west of Wasika, and Looking at the data, we're all continuous corn. We had um, where we were going in and putting uh, 45 pounds down at planting, and then coming back at V5 or V10 and with a split application. And we got the same yield, same end response rate. To the, so everything was exactly the same no matter when we apply that in. So it isn't, a simple, it isn't a simple answer to that question.
1: Right. Probably need to qualify, Dan, for, for listeners who aren't familiar with uh, Minnesota uh, geography that the Becker site has got very sandy soils. So uh, for those who raise their eyebrows to the uh, 300 pounds of nitrogen, uh, uh, we're dealing with, with soils that typically are irrigated there.
3: Yeah. So our typical recommendation for that site would be closer to 210 pounds for continuous corn so it'd be higher um, just because of the irrigation, but um, typically I go a step or two above that with our, rec- our rate studies to try to then hopefully get a few rates above that optimum, but um, we've had some years in there that um, it's that's a sandbox, it's like 95% sand, that it's, um, you know, very leachable, and we get a two, three inch rain event after our application, not that long after, and it just seemed like it flushed some of that down. So, you know, Fabian, I mean, those comments you made about timing, I think are really key, and it's, been a little more common to get some of those well, two-inch rain events or so right around the time of application, which it does a very good job of incorporating the urea to a point at which it can incorporate it a little bit too far, it seems, or move the nitrogen down. So it's, I mean, a lot of that, I think, um, you know, looking at risk of these rainfall events is really something we need to know. And when we start coming up with, you know, what's the best option for certain areas, because if we can establish some of that, I think we can get a best, better handle on, What's the overall potential for some of these, these different application methods, particularly timing, to come into play in under those circumstances?
0: I think that, uh, you know, everybody can probably acknowledge these shifts in precip and precip patterns. Uh, you look, uh, I think it was, what, two years ago, Jeff, the Rochester site. Uh, we had our average annual uh, precip in, during the course of the normal growing season, and Brad, uh, one of the first years we had, well, and Jeff, uh, one of the first years we had that on farm variable rate nitrogen trial where we were comparing pre's versus a fixed split versus the variable rate. Uh, We had those excessively wet conditions and then uh, pretty excessive uh, rainfall, particularly in that kind of a a June timing. We had a couple of really heavy rainfalls. I think one of the sites we ended up seeing. uh the need to replace almost all the nitrogen some of the best yield response if i'm remembering correctly was was uh, uh where the variable rate actually was was what i would have considered excessively high you know and um something that comes to mind then or that i start to think about is that if if we're if we're in these wet conditions um and getting these excessive amounts of rain uh you know, we're going to face some pretty big logistical challenges when we look at the size of of top dressing equipment or side dressing equipment and uh, the timing to get that kind of operation done in the field. It's it's just if things are wet, it's not very conducive to getting that application on. And so it, it's really left me scratching my head where some of the probably the best opportunities for you to see paybacks to the split, it's going to be really challenging to... To get that operation done, with at least right now with the size of equipment and things that that we're using for for doing that side ap- side dress or, or top dress application.
1: Yeah, it's, it's going to be like a lot of uh, a lot of uh, factors where um, probably best suited to medium sized farmers. If you're big and you got a lot of acres, it's going to be tough to get it all done. And if you're small, you might not have access to the the equipment and the technology. There's probably a middle range. That this is going to really be uh, something that that wants to be investigated in great detail. Now there is one concept that got introduced here earlier. I think Dan brought it up, and and I, I think it's uh, it's worth talking about, and it's relative to the potential of of ammonium fixation uh, into the clay particles, and it actually sort of relates to the uh, conversation we had a couple weeks ago about. Uh, potassium management and, and uh, uh, Dave Franzen from North Dakota uh, gave a presentation at the nitrogen conference that we had Fabian that you uh, hosted here a couple of weeks ago discussing this concept of, of ammonium fixation and clay particles uh, and the the thought that if things got excessively dry uh, potentially those the clay layers could collapse and lock that nitrogen in and not, not allow it to be available um, what do you guys think of that as as possibly what's going on? And Dan, uh, relative to some of your work with clay uh, speciation uh, and potassium, uh, is this something that that bears further investigation for Minnesota?
3: Well, that's a good question, and I really don't know. I mean, it's it, it would be interesting to kind of see. I mean, I actually what I'd be interested in is just some historical data. If we had some samples still archived from maybe 10, 15 years ago, just to kind of see what the numbers are coming back. Um, What Dave's data showed and kind of what they were looking at was in cover crop species, they were trying to figure out why, particularly with cereal rye, they were not seeing um, any effect of any of the nitrogen that the cereal rye was taken up on yield. And what they were finding is that um, there was a significant shift in the amount of ammonia that was fixed after cereal rise. So, you know, it may have been releasing some of that nitrogen, but that nitrogen was being fixed between the clay layers and wasn't, I I mean, ideally available, just looking at their data on it. So it made me kind of start thinking a little bit about that too. It's maybe something, you know, we could look at at some point just to see, you know, potentially corn, corn or corn, soybean, maybe there's some differences there. And I don't know, Fabian, if you've seen any instances where anybody's looked at that. I don't know who's looked at fixation. I mean, it's something that, you know, I don't know if it, It would explain everything, but um, it'd be something, I guess, interesting to kind of look at just to see if there's something going on there that, um, you know, maybe there's just need less maybe in continuous corn. That might be why that needs been going up or something else been going on. I have no idea. It's just pure speculation at this point.
2: Yeah, and there hasn't been a lot of work done, at least in the the recent past, on on ammonia fixation in agricultural fields related to the clays. One thing though that um, is kind of interesting with um, uh, some of the work that we did with nitrogen 15 recently, and, and the fact that uh, we are able to tr- track where that nitrogen goes, and we saw that very quick after the application, most of that nitrogen is not uh, in the plant available form. So it becomes part of uh, either the uh, the organic fraction or is uh, fixed in the clays. That was uh, one of the first times where I was very surprised at how quickly, I mean, in a matter of a few days, a large portion of the nitrogen applied as a fertilizer was, it disappeared. I mean, it was in the system as a total nitrogen. We, we didn't do the speciation to see if it was organic or if it was in the clays, uh, but it was not in the ammonium or nitrate uh, fractions that we analyze typically as plant available nitrogen, and so I, I think there is quite a bit of that. Uh, the fact that uh, we depend on mineralization or release of, nitri- of nitrogen that is fixed in the soil, I think it's uh, a really important thing that we have not been paying too much attention to, and I think we need to start.
4: I think going to that, Fabian, uh, something, some uh, practical implications to think about with that, that data that came from that grad student study, is if we're out there looking at spring PSNT soil sampling around side dress, we re- we need to recognize how rapidly that that broadcast fertilizer can all of a sudden like disappear from the system in that ammonium or nitrate inorganic end form, and that makes some of those types of tests um, difficult to interpret. And then the second thing I think that would be interesting or of interest. Would be to look at a situation where you had a banded nitrogen application like in ammonia that might be more resistant to that, quote, you know, um, moving into the organic or outside the inorganic fraction. And maybe that would be more prevalent and stick around a little bit longer.
2: Yeah, and I think this, you know, this brings us back to, to an earlier comment when we were talking about. Uh, um, the fact that brad mentioned that good years sometimes uh, they don't need that we don't need as much nitrogen to to get really big yields and i always say that good weather for corn growth is good weather for mineralization and so i think we need to be looking more at the ability of the soil to supply nitrogen and to supply it in large quantities when the crop needs it in large quantities we have not really been looking at at that very intensively Uh, but I can tell you and anybody that has done nitrogen in-season nitrogen uh, sampling just to see what the the nitrogen status of the soil is, uh, around V8, that's the last time you see some nitrogen in the soil. After that, the the levels are pretty much background levels and so we are, the plants are depending on on that mineralization rate, how fast the soil is able to to supply that nitrogen to, to meet the demands. And like I said, we, we have not really looked at that. I think we need to start looking more at that capacity of the soil to supply nitrogen, nitrogen through you know, either mineralization or release of those fixed uh, ammonia ions.
1: So that's a good segue into the, the next area I wanted to explore just a little bit. And, and that is that our, our best management practice regions Uh, Southeastern Minnesota, of course, is based a lot on soil type and and the geology of the southeast, Uh, and of course we have separate recommendations for sandy soils, Uh, but the rest of the state tends to be more uh, geared around climate regions. So uh, where do you guys have a feel for where we might be headed with making different recommendations based on soil types uh, as well as uh, climate regions in the state?
3: Well, that's a, good, that's a good question, Brad, when it comes down to it, because I think one of the things, you know, Fabian could probably speak to this um, probably more than I can is the southwest. You look at fall urea, you know, kind of what our recommendations were at some point in time. You look at what our recommendations would be now. You look at shifts in climate there. I think that's probably a, a good example of, you know, a situation where I don't think it's necessarily soil specific, because really you look at the Normania vest series, is they're not overly different from the Clarion Nicolette's. Over there, other than just the fact that they were formed under areas where we have evapotranspiration was greater than precip. So the soils themselves aren't all that different. It was always more of the climatic issues with it. And I think uh, we're seeing um, instances where we get more rainfall in those areas. You know, I haven't seen what the 30-year norms are in those areas to kind of see how things have changed. But, um it'd be interesting to kind of look, because we've seen that, it mean, be more problematic, some of these practices, particularly in the, the southwest or the western part of the state where we'd normally be able to rely on more carryover of nitrogen applied for the fall, but just because the precipitation were, were generally less.
2: Yeah, and I, I agree. I think the soil uh, aspect is important, but uh, precipitation, I think, kind of overshadows any differences that we may see related to soils that are within, you know, a lot of similarities, like Dan was mentioning. Um, and the other thing that I have also noticed, uh, and, and if you talk to anybody studying climate, will tell you that uh, the trend for Minnesota is wetter springs and drier summers. And that's a, also another part of concern because that goes into, well, if we side dress nitrogen, for instance, uh, so that we um, avoid issues with nitrogen loss but then you end up uh, applying nitrogen when the soils start to dry up and that nitrogen never makes it into the root zone that's a different problem uh, the, the plant is not able to access that nitrogen and obviously eventually that nitrogen is going to move into the soil and likely be lost uh, once it starts to rain again and so those are I think uh, other challenges, but uh, the, the weather I think is very important and coming back to what you Brad were asking, I think um, we need to start looking more and more at the uh, weather, specifically precipitation, uh, to maybe redefine potentially some of these uh, BMP regions uh, the way that we have them currently.
1: Well, and I was thinking even even a little bit uh, uh, beyond that though and, and you know, Jeff, I guess a lot of your guys' research tends to run east-west, but I was sort of thinking as you go north of Wasika, you start getting into alpha soils. They're not necessarily the prairie soils. They're lower organic matters. Uh, we may have some different clay types. I mean, is it, is it something we maybe need to start investigating, Dan? We've had those research projects in LeSueur County uh, the last few years, and we're seeing some kind of some different uh, results than we do at Wasika, which is actually not very far away.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, we could look at investigating a little bit more, but I've still seen on a lot of the studies we're doing. Uh, I mean, I've had some work going with Department of Ag with these um, NMI level two plots that have been over Nicolet County and in that area. And you know, I, I've got instances where we don't need a lot of N. So we're looking at corn following soybean, um, not getting a response even to around a hundred pounds. And also, then we got situations like last year that site by Madison Lake where um, you know I targeted roughly 150 pounds for my fixed pre-plant. And I was about 40 to 50 pounds short with it. So I mean it's, it's the consistency and that's what I'm struggling with right now because I looked just specifically at continuous corn. I went back into our database and I started mining through this. So I was looking at different time chunks and what the MRTN is right now because right now our data goes back to 1995. So it's 25 years um, up through 2020. I actually The online calculator is updated to 2019 but I've got the data through 2020 um, that we got summarized late last year, but you look at going back 25 years at MRTN is 169. We go 20 years it's 176, 15 years 184. Go back 10 years and it's, it's 199 so you can see how things change, however I think Brad we've got a good example of the study you worked at over in Rice County. It was continuous corn with one of those Minnesota corn producer grants, which I think the MRTN was around one, or they were targeting around 160 or so for that. And they had 250 bushel yield with it. So, you know, the, the question is, we know things have been increasing and, and being able to target those specific areas is difficult right now. So that's the thing I struggle with is, you know, if we make wholesale changes in our guidelines right now, is how well it's going to cover everything. And do we have enough examples to be able to split things out where you can say that if you're in, Waseca County, say the southern part in there and some of those heavier soils, that we know that the higher end demand, you use this number versus somewhere else you use that number. Because I have a feeling everybody's going to use the higher number at some point, even though, um, you know, we need to be a little more prescriptive on this. So it's it's really continuous corn is kind of the, the, the biggest problem we have right now is, is really trying to get a handle on what that recommendation is. Because I think we could probably be more specific, but right now we just don't have the good tools for it. And it'd be nice to see some options where we could look at like um, remote sensing. Uh, we're looking at the pre-plant nitrate test in, te- in the study we have, um, but I haven't seen a clear winner at this point. And that's really the, the big challenge is trying to be more, more specific, particularly for those growers that are in government programs. Cause that's, I think the ones that really see this first and foremost uh, when they're looking at our MRTN rates um, and um, using those and um, seeing instances where we might be a little bit short on nitrogen
1: and it's worth it's worth kind of restating, I guess. Just, and I don't know that I necessarily need to remind uh, uh, the typical listener to this podcast, but in the for the sake of this conversation, we have to remember that nitrates in water are a pretty serious challenge to our industry. And so, uh, just simply based on last year's performance data. Uh, relative to nitrogen rate and yield does not necessarily mean we need to just start running automatically to the higher end under all circumstances. We really need to start investigating closely what those circumstances are and, and be careful because uh, we, could, we, could, uh, we could head in the wrong direction as far as nitrate concentrations in surface water and run ourselves into regulation real fast uh, if, if we're not careful with how we respond to this. So So given that, uh, my uh, little Debbie Downer uh, there, um, based on what we saw last year, what are you guys uh, what are you guys telling producers as far as the take home message on, on some of these higher end rates and the necessity of those uh, as far as w- how they should be interpreting those? I guess maybe specifically for this year. I guess we, let's not worry about what this means in the in the long term sense because at this point, you know, we're maybe a, only a month away, or maybe even less for guys starting to put nitrogen on. Uh, uh, and so, um, wh- wh- how should they be filtering this information with what they're going to do for the coming growing season?
4: Brad, I would one of the advice that I try to give at every nitrogen talk that I do is I always think that the maximum of the acceptable range of the corn end rate calculator at the 0.1 price ratio is a good place for growers to start. But then they need to think about being ready to make a change or be incorporating some kind of adaptive end management system and have a plan if they if they get the, if we get the weather or if there's something that the crop doesn't look right and that they need to make a change. And I know that's a challenge. As we talked about earlier, there's not enough equipment out there to cover every acre with a either a, a, a planned side dress or a rescue type side dress application. But that's kind of the where, where we're headed. It seems like that's going to be where we're going to have to be in the future. Now, what tools we use to help fine-tune and make those recommendations and try to get the right rate, that's probably the big question mark. And I think Dan alluded to that in the last comment.
2: You know, I think the uh, managing by probability is probably one of the best things we can we can do. Um, this week, earlier this week in the nutrient management conference, we were talking about weather and climate change and a question came up about okay, how do we deal with um, this uncertainty in weather and managing nitrogen and nutrients in general, but specifically nitrogen. And um, again, anybody that works in, in, in climate and, and understanding weather will tell you that the science is not there to predict weather very well. Um, and it looks like it will be maybe a long time, hopefully. Uh, where we may be able to start to have better information on weather and pre- predictions, you know, um, pretty much past four or five days I think is kind of the, the limit of uh, the confidence that we can have on, on weather predictions. And when you look at nitrogen applications, even if you do a somewhat late application around B8 B10, you still have a huge amount of time for that growing season to, to do all sorts of things. And and so I think more and more we need to, as producers, uh, you know your farm, you know the conditions and you have to start looking at year to year what worked and what didn't work and how often. And I think we need to start looking at that as a starting point saying, you know, if 8 out of 10 times uh, this worked, well, the chances are pretty good that it will work. and so of sticking to that but if you see on the opposite side that this particular part of the field or, or this whole field um, most often than not ends up having to have additional nitrogen apply well adjust your management so that maybe you may still need to apply nitrogen but maybe delay the application or do something uh, so that you minimize how much additional nitrogen you need to be applying i think that probability looking at has experience and and trying to predict what my work is also very important.
3: Well, I think the other thing to watch out too is, um, you know, we focus a lot on rate. Um, You know, we kind of always talk about the the four R's when it comes down to management. And, you know, rate is a factor, but we can't just fix everything by rate. I mean, it seems like we can, um, but when it comes to water quality, it becomes more of an issue. With that. And I think, particularly, um, you know, when we see the shifts in the, the source usage, particularly going to more urea, you have to understand that material differently. And you have to think about it differently than anhydrous. Um, you incorporate it shallowly. We know we can have some volatility issues with it. While that's not necessarily reaching the water, it's still an issue for you if you're buying it and if it's, it's gassing off as ammonia. And so the management becomes completely different and you have to look at these four R's and how they integrate together really when you're coming up with your plan, So it's not necessarily I can just shift to a different source and not have to potentially rethink what I'm doing. So that's, you know, one of the things that, you know, I kind of look at with it, um, you know, we focus a lot on rates and the rates are wrong and all all these things when we we hear a lot of... um, questions and concerns about that, but we've got to look at some of these other practices to see if we can just do things a little bit better without having to completely revamp what we're doing out there in the field. One thing I will say um, moving forward is we will be looking at um, some changes probably in the guidelines. I'm probably going to look at um, some of the earlier data uh, taking that out with the next revamp, particularly for continuous corn. I don't really think we need a lot um you know, change for corn, soybean, as Jeff said, you know, what I would also recommend for growers is being up near the upper end of the range, particularly on these um, poorly drained soils for continuous corn. For corn, soybean, I mean, that can kind of be, I think, a good argument too. But if you're in a little bit better drainage, um, you know, you might be able to look at backing that back towards the MRTN as well. But that's why we have that acceptable range there. We put that in place for growers. That way they have some options in terms of making some some judgments based on their own conditions and um, looking at what the recommended ranges are and, and um, using that range then to um, adjust whether they feel like they need more or less based on that MRTN. So I guess that's a big thing. It's just looking at what you're doing and, and just thinking, is there a way we could be doing things better? And it isn't necessarily that you have to be out there doing all these split applications you know, maybe it's just, you know, some small tweaks that you look at doing. And the other thing is that is inhibitors are not going to get us out of this completely. And that's one of the things that I, um, we hear a lot, particularly nitrification inhibitors. We get a lot of questions on these things, and they are not going to be the saviors in terms of um, making sure that our nitrogen isn't lost. Because there is a, a window when those things are most effective after application, and they're not foolproof. And there's also a few of them out there on the market, too, which are not inhibitors that are marked as inhibitors. And that's the other thing that you have to be careful and know what you're you're using and what you're spending your money on because you could be spending money needlessly on something that isn't working.
0: All right. Well, with that, I think we've, uh, we've run the gamut here with nitrogen today and covered what we needed to cover, Brad. And I want to uh, take a second here and just thank our guests and thank everyone for listening to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop podcast.